Uh, for the next several weeks, uh, as many of you should already know, I am going to not be here. Uh, I am going to take uh, somewhere, I guess, a five or six week sabbatical, which, um, to, to, at least for the first week, I think I'm going to sleep. <laughs> All right? And some of you have been telling me to do this for years, and a few of you, I get the feeling, you want me to do this for a long time. But I know it's because you love me. All right? So, uh, God willing, here on Monday, I'll be heading out. So, we're starting a series uh, in the book of Daniel, and I'm going to be kicking the series off. I want to just mention a little bit about the book of Daniel this morning. The book of Daniel is treated by many uh, in a skeptical manner. Uh, uh, m- many scholars, I would honestly have to say that most scholars today doubt that a fellow named Daniel ever existed. The name Daniel pops up in our biblical text a few times. Ezekiel mentions someone named Daniel uh, several times in conjunction with Noah and, uh, and another guy, I kept Job. Um, and so uh, he's considered, you know, referenced by Ezekiel to be a wise person who understood visions and dreams. There was somebody uh, in the Mesopotamian region around, uh, I don't know, the 1300s or 1400s BCE who also was named Daniel. You know, people like to be skeptical of our Bible. The problem is, is that there's no need to be skeptical about the biblical text. Uh, The book of Daniel purports to be about the life of an individual named Daniel. Did someone want to turn that off? (laughs) And, um, and, And there's no reason to doubt that important truth. It's like there's no reason to doubt that Jonah got swallowed by a whale. No reason to doubt that Job wasn't an actual person. When the biblical text speaks about individuals, and they do it within a historical context, it's because the writer, whoever it was that that wrote that material down, expects us to take it literally. Okay? Expects us to take it literally. If you've read through the book of Daniel and you've ever read it in, in, a, in a context where maybe someone has uh, cast doubt upon whether or not you can take Daniel as a real person, it's important to notice that the book of Daniel was found in the, uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, at least fragments of it, which means that it, it's very old. Okay. Also, that within the text of the book of Daniel, as I stated, you've got both Hebrew, Aramaic, and Chaldean languages used. Okay, You've got ancient languages, and within actually the text, you also have some Greek loan words, and the words used and the context that they're used would would indicate that the person writing it was writing it back in the 6th century when the book of Daniel is purported to have been written. Also, Daniel's historical knowledge of Babylonian and Persian uh, monarchical history is something that uh, is hard to to ignore. I mean, uh, somebody, I can't remember which one of you is preaching about or doing the section on Belshazzar, who was uh, the king of Babylon at the time the Persians conquered. And in the text, the, the, uh, the um, Belshazzar offers Daniel to be third in the kingdom. And what's, you know, most people don't know what to do with that, except for the fact that Nabonidus was actually king of Babylon at the time, and he went off in a spiritual journey down into what I guess is Saudi Arabia, 
today and gave half the kingdom then for had a regent in Belshazzar. So Belshazzar couldn't offer him half the kingdom. That's a phrase that shows up every once in a while. He couldn't offer him half because there was actually somebody else involved. So he said, I'll give you a third. Well, we didn't discover that until like the last like 100 years or so. That was like lost information ever since the Babylonian Empire was destroyed. So before you get skeptical and cynical about the biblical text, study a little bit. Make sure you understand some of this historical scholarly information because the more you study, the more I think you will be strengthened in your appreciation of the Bible. Now, the whole book of Daniel is all about God's encouragement through Daniel, first of all, in Daniel and his friends, and then through Daniel for the Jewish people. It's a lot like the book of Ezekiel and some of these other texts uh, where the Jewish people are, are having really difficult times because of the, the, the politics. You know, they're in exile, they're almost in exile, they're wondering whether or not they're going to survive. God makes it very clear that no matter what occurs in human history, God is in control. That's important. Do you really know? Some of you are getting older, all right? But those who are old enough know there's not much we actually control. Death and taxes, everybody is going to have to experience that one way or another. And there's nothing you can do about it, okay? There's very little we actually control. But the book of Daniel reminds us that God is in control. And that's all that really matters. It's one of the reasons why as we look at chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel decides he wants to follow God rather than follow the king. It's the reason why Daniel basically says that he would rather submit to God and his instruction than, than try to make the king happy. Because God is in control of all. The king, he's in control only of what God allows him to be in control of. What is your conviction regarding God's instruction? What is your conviction in regards to God's instruction? Do you see God as the king of the universe? Do you see him as the one who's really calling all the shots? Are you living your life each and every day with a desire to fulfill God's expectation. Is that your conviction? You all have convictions. We all have convictions. Some of you are convic convinced, you are convictional about your commitment to Chipotle. Of course, I don't see David at the moment, but I know that the man bought stock. He believes in that company. What are you convictional about? What are you, what are you convicted about? going into a political race. Some of us are Democrats. Some of us are Republicans. Some of us are skeptics and cynics. What are you convicted about? You've got convictions. Everybody has convictions. But do the convictions you have, do they actually control you? Believe it or not, they do. They really do. And it's good to be convicted about something. It's good to be passionate about something. Just want to make sure you're passionate about the right stuff. I'm going to read this article. It's a couple years old. It says, For those who don't know her, she's simply a woman who runs a Bristol, Rhode Island bar. But for thousands of others, Betty Ann Waters is a hero, reports CBS News correspondent Russ Mitchell. 
Her story began almost 30 years ago after the brutal murder of a 48-year-old Massachusetts woman. The main suspect was Kenny Waters, Betty Ann's younger brother. I told him I never killed nobody, Kenny Waters said. I don't know what you are talking about. But three years after the murder, Waters was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. I had a five-day trial and I was away for the rest of my life, Waters said. His sister never believed he did it. Betty Ann said that Kenny was the life of the party and admits he was a troublemaker, but in her heart she knew he was not a killer. So Betty Ann, a high school dropout, enrolled in community college, then on to law school and became her brother's attorney. Betty Ann said that she never had a moment when she wanted to give up. How could I? If I gave up, that would have been giving up on him and he wouldn't have made it, Betty Ann said. She faced setback after setback and after a long, frustrating search, finally a breakthrough. I felt like someone a mile away could hear my heartbeat, Betty Ann said. It was amazing. With the help of attorney Barry Sheck's innocent project, she was able to show through DNA testing that the blood found at the murder scene was not her brother's. And after 18 years in prison, Kenny Waters was declared innocent. I think it's absolutely amazing that she dedicated her life to this, Kenny said. In 2010, the story was told on the big screen in the movie Conviction. Tragically, in 2001, 47-year-old Kenny died after a freak fall just six months after his release. But his sister said that he enjoyed every minute of his freedom. I just wish he was here to see this movie. I wish he was here to live his life. I feel that he's here, Betty Ann said. Betty Ann Waters doesn't practice law anymore, but still fights for others wronged by the criminal justice system. A sister who continues to live by her convictions. A conviction that changed her life. A conviction that impacted every single corner of her life. As followers of Messiah Yeshua, we are called to live lives of conviction. This morning, I want us to look at the life of Daniel and see how he lived based on his, uh, based on his convictions. So turn with me, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 in the Congregational Tanakh, it's page 799. Page 799. I mentioned earlier, the book of Daniel is a historical document. The Jewish community treats it as a historical document, although it's filled with prophetic uh, material as well. That's why it is not found among the prophets in the uh, Christian Bible. It is. For Jewish people, it's found in the Ketuvim. It's found in the writings. Uh, also, it's interesting to note that for, uh, within the Jewish community, because of some of the, uh, the uniquenesses of it, uh, people are usually forbidden to read it until they're 40 or something like that. All right, but uh, the bottom line is it's a good book, even if you're here. Michael, I expect you to be reading this text. Okay, so page 799. Page 799. Do you guys have texts over here? I'm looking. You guys have, okay. Don't just, yeah, come on, come on. I can see you guys. Page 799. I may have to wear these things now to read up close, but I got good long-term vision here. Okay, all right. Page 799. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 5. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. God gave King Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and put the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Then the king told Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel from royal descent and nobility, used without any defect, the handsome, uh, proficient in all wisdom, knowledge, intelligence, and capable of serving in the king's palace. 
He was to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king allotted them a daily portion from the king's delicacies and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years. And at the end, they were to stand before the people. Wow. Okay, here we start off the chapter. Uh, and here we're setting the stage. Stay, the, the, the setting of the stage of King, uh, of the, I'm sorry, the book of Daniel, first of all, starts out very negative. All right? Uh, the Jewish people, they're not following God. I don't have time to go into the history, but let's just say, unfortunately, it's we're not doing what God wants one more time. And God said, enough. Enough. And he brought judgment. Judah is judged. Remember, the northern kingdom was taken in exile, you know, 100 years earlier, 721. Around 605 is when this takes place. All right, it's, in, in historical terms, you've got the rise of Babylon, you've got the, the end of the Assyrian Empire, and the decline of Egypt, okay? And Israel is always in the middle, <laughs> even today, okay? Think about it. Israel's always in the middle. When the people, when our people, when we are following God, what happens? God stands with us and protects us. He fights for us. King David had to deal with the same empire structures in his day, but God fought for Israel because of David. Now the people are not following God. The kings are wicked. They're disobedient to God's instruction. So God allows judgment, and the captivity takes, takes place. This is the first captivity. Daniel is taken in the first captivity, approximately 605 BCE. A second one will take place in 597. That's when Ezekiel is taken along with others. And Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, who is mentioned here, is taken captive in 597. And then one more time, a final destruction of all of Judea, including the temple, in 586. You would think that we could learn Strike one is 605, that's Daniel. Strike two is Jehoiakim in 597, that's Ezekiel. Strike three, that's Jeremiah. And we're out, okay? And uh, not out permanently, but God has certainly ticked off at us. The temple is destroyed, and the nation goes into Galut. All right? Uh, just so you know, Daniel is taken into captivity along with the sons and grandsons of important people. This is common. Uh, these individuals, like I said, they serve kind of as, uh, as hostages. Right? They serve kind of like hostages. But also in 605, the Babylonians are flexing their muscles. They have quickly defeated the, the Assyrians, quickly defeated the Egyptians, the Battle of Carchemish. Is, is where this took place. So not to bore too many of you with history. But the, the Babylonians need these prisoners. They need these hostages. Don't think of the Babylonians, Babylonians coming in and taking Daniel and, and these individuals and mistreating them. That's not it. They take them as hostages, but for a reason, as you can tell in the text. They are to re-educate them into Babylonians. Because the Babylonians need these young people who know a new language, understand a new geography. They are the children of leaders who've been educated probably more in line with the Egyptians because the Judeans had relations with the Egyptians. All right, That's just the way things worked in that section of the Levant. And so the Babylonians looked at them as valuable people to add to the 
government bureaucracy of Babylon. You guys tracking with me? So don't think Daniel's being led away, being whipped. He's probably being led away, but treated very nicely. When it says in the text that they're feeding them from the king's table, they're not getting scraps. They're getting filet mignon, and they're getting all the best that they could have. They're feeding them top shelf food and drink. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Well, the problem is all that top shelf stuff, it's not kosher. It's not remotely kosher. Filet mignon, just to remind you all, is not a kosher meat. It's not a kosher cut, I should say. Now, we read on in the text. At verse 6, it says, Now among them were some of the sons of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officer gave them new names to Daniel, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. They were changing their identity. Just as a little note as I look at my watch here. If you were a Jew who became a believer in Jesus 100, 150 years ago, you had to take a new name. Your entire identity had to change. You were changing people. You were going from being a Jew, a part of the nation of Israel, to become a Christian, a member of the church, whatever church that was. And complete loss of identity was expected of you. That's what was expected of you. There's a movie I saw not too long ago with uh, Cardinal Lustiger. And if you haven't seen it, go see this movie. He became a Jew. He was a survivor of the Holocaust and by conviction became Catholic. Not that I'm a big Catholic guy, but the bottom line is by conviction, he became a Catholic, a believer in Jesus. He really became a believer in Jesus. Some of our Messianic Jewish leaders met with him and they knew him. He was a true believer. And he changed his name because that's what was expected of him. But he refused to give up his identity. It's a great movie. You should watch it. But these guys, they were given new names. They were expected to assimilate. They're expected to assimilate. As American Jews, no one forces us to assimilate. As American Jews, we almost leap forward in anticipation of what can I do to lose my identity? Please, hand me a pork chop. Let me work on Shabbat. It's almost our attitude as Jews who believe in Yeshua. It's like we're ashamed of being Jews. The whole rest of America is like philo-Semitic. Everybody wants to marry a Jew. Everybody wants to live near Jews. Everybody wants to eat a bagel. But Jews are the ones who are eating white bread. Why? What is with us? Well, we hate ourselves so much. We hate our identity. We want to we just shed it from us, it seems, too often. That is American Jewish identity. I mean, read the reports, read it. We, some, we, we just seem to despise our identity. Here we see these young men, verse 8, confronted with assimilation in their food because you can't do much about what they're going to call you in Babylonian. But in verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's delicacies or with the wine he was drinking. So he entreated the chief official for permission not to defile himself. Now God caused the chief official to show mercy and compassion to Daniel. But the chief official said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who allotted your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking poorly unlike the other youths your age? Then the king would have my head because of you. 
Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days, giving us just vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance and the appearance of the youth, the youths who eat the king's delicacies and treat your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. Daniel and his friends took a stand by conviction. They said, we are Jews. God has commanded us not to eat this stuff. We can't do it. Now, they didn't have a hunger strike, okay? That would not have solved much. They probably would have been killed, just so you know. There was only so much you could do as a hostage. But they did desire to, uh, to live out their conviction, and they took a stand. And they went very nicely to the guy in charge. They went nicely. God is always working on behalf of those who want to take a stand for him. Have you noticed that in the biblical text? I've noticed it in my life. And the, the guy over them was predisposed to like them. And so Daniel went and, and asked permission. He didn't demand his rights. He asked permission. You know, it's interesting. I often will challenge individuals in this community, take Shabbat off. Don't work on the holidays. You know, if you, nice, if you nicely ask, it's amazing what people will do, especially if you have a religious conviction. If you choose to follow the Torah, God's instruction for us as Jews, don't be surprised if God actually gives you the permission that you need so that you can follow your conviction. The guy's like, I don't want to die because I'm going to die. And Daniel says, listen, let's test it out. And it, so for Daniel, it's a fleece. God, I really want to live my life for you. I want to follow your instruction. But I'm in an authority structure. God, work. God, work on our behalf. So 10 days, he gave him vegetables and water. I hate vegetables and water. I'd much rather get a ribeye steak and a glass of good wine. But vegetables and water for 10 days. And what does it say in the text? At the end of 10 days, their appearance looked better and their bodies healthier than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, those of you in the medical profession <laughs> know that's probably not the norm, right? Vegetables and water. Where's the protein, for crying out loud? Oh, is that it? But I want to point out what I think is the miracle. I think that God intervened on their behalf and worked a miracle. Anyway, it was so great, the guard took away all their delicacies and the wine they were supposed to drink and gave them vegetables instead. If you choose to live your life based on God's instructions, you convictionally determine you will obey God's instructions for you. Believe that God will bless you. Because that's what God promises to do. If you follow God and you follow his commandments, he will bless you. I think sometimes we're more convinced as believers that if we do whatever we want, God will bless us anyway. <laughs> now, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. We see this simple example in the life of Daniel, the example of God's blessing for people who live by conviction. Obviously, for me as a rabbi, I'm going to say, folks, let's eat God's way. Let's live God's way when it comes to the Shabbat, the two big ones, right? But it's more of a general principle that I want to really encourage us in today. To read God's instruction and to really take it personally into our lives. 
who believe that what God said is really true, that he will bless us when we obey him, that he will bless us when we choose him first in our lives. That's true in every aspect of our lives, whether it's with our time, with our resources, with our relationships. To convictionally believe that choosing to follow God will bring God's blessing. These guys, you know, as it says in the text in verse 17, God gave them knowledge and proficiency and every kind of wisdom and literature, and Daniel could understand all sorts of visions and dreams. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. When the king spoke with them, he did not find among all of them anyone like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers throughout his realm. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel goes into captivity. You know how old he was when he stood up by, by conviction? It was the age of these guys right here in the second pew. No older than Kyle. Absolutely no older than Kyle. Because Kyle, you're what, 19? Maybe as young as 13. I would say probably it was Paul's age. You may say, why? Because back then people didn't live that long, one. Two, people were already apprenticed and in a trade by the time they were 13 years of age. Wanted young people. They grabbed young people who had some education in, the, in Judah, which means they were already somewhere in the bureaucratic system of that nation. They plucked them out, re-educated them for three years, and put them in the service. When we get to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is probably less than 20 years of age. Less than 20 years of age. At what age should you stand up by conviction? The age of these guys, and I should also point beyond them because Hannah's right there in the fourth row. One, two, three, four. Guys, you don't wait till you're old to choose to live a life of conviction. Although, if you're older, you should be already living a very strong life of conviction. When you're young, choose this day whom you will serve. As Joshua said at the age of 80 or thereabouts. Do you live a life of conviction based on God's instruction? We wrap this whole thing up. That's really the question to ask. Is it noticeable to those around you? Is your, are your convictions as a follower of Messiah Yeshua as a Jew who accepts the Messiah Yeshua, are they noticeable to the people around you? Not that you're annoying and obnoxious, but are you known as a person of convictions that have to do with religious convictions and commitments? Just think in terms of our secular world, right? Would people know you're a Jew because of your commitment to God's instructions for us as Jews who believe in Yeshua, as Jewish people? Would they know you're a Jew? Or would they just assume you're a Christian? Now, I hope they assume you're a believer in Jesus. That's more important than anything. But since we are a synagogue of Jews who believe in Yeshua, do they know you're a Jew? By your convictions? How are you living differently than the people around you? 
How are you living differently? How do you stand out for God? How do you stand out for God? And what are you doing to respectfully and boldly let people know about your convictional stand when those things come up on the job? When your boss wants you to do something on Shabbat, have you ever told them that you have a conviction in regards to the Shabbat? If you're you know, in an environment uh, where you have a say in what you can eat, uh, do, do people know that you, do you don't eat everything? <laughs> that there are certain things you don't eat because you are a Jew? Let's go to a moral thing. When you're with your friends and they all want to go see a movie, are you going to go see a movie that's not God-honoring? I mean, I don't know what is God-honoring anymore in the movies, it seems. But, but, but something that's so over the top with nudity or, or ridiculous profanity or such incredible violence and slaughter that, it, that Yeshua would certainly not watch those clips. <laughs> Do you have convictions that are demonstrated in your life that others can see, and they, they respect you for it because you do it in an honorable way. Something to think about. Daniel's an ama amazing character, a man who lived by conviction, probably about Paul and Hannah's age. How are you doing at your age? <laughs> are you living a life of conviction based on God's instruction? Something to think about. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word and the challenge of it. We thank you, God, for the fact that you are a God who has given us good instruction that would provide for us encouragement and really blessing. Help us, God, to read it, to study it, and to build from it into our lives convictions to lead us and guide us so that we might truly be the people you want us to be, that we might be the influencers like Daniel and all you did with him and, and the other guys, God, that we would be able to be influencers for you as well. We pray all this in Messiah Yeshua's name.